Hello, everybody, and welcome to Uncork the Sun with the Vinstitute Wine School. I'm your host, Mastro Kogel, and if you're curious about the origins of my name, my father immigrated from Holland when he was a child, and my mother is a tree. I want to thank everybody who listened to the first episode of our podcast. This is, of course, the second episode, so we're still just getting things rolling right here. But we had a great response from the first one. Lots of listens, lots of comments, lots of emails coming into me. And that makes it a lot easier for me to record this in a closed room by myself, staring at a wall, knowing that there is actually somebody who hears it on the other end. For those of you who are just listening to this for the first time, uh, hi, how are you? Welcome. This is a podcast all about winemaking, wine production, and wine appreciation, and it's recorded right here in the towns of Oliver and De Soyuz, which are the epicenter, the focal point of the British Columbia wine industry. A strong majority, 65% of all British Columbia's wine grapes come from these two towns, and so this is the optimal place to talk about viticulture and onology, which translate to grape growing and winemaking. This is, as you can all probably imagine, a really strange time for every industry in the world. I'm referring, of course, to the outbreak of COVID-19 and the global pandemic that we're living to. And I didn't really want to put such a fine point on it. But again, I'm still retaining hope that people will be listening to this podcast decades in the future as some kind of historic document. And that, cross fingers, people will have forgotten about this pandemic by then. But for those of us listening to it right now, it's hard to think about anything else. In the wine industry, we have it more fortunate than some. As long as the trucks keep driving, logistic supply chains keep going, it means that we can keep shipping wine out and we can keep getting wine to our customers. Although the tasting bars are closed, temporary foreign workers are harder to come by for our vineyard labor. And a lot of people who work in marketing or sales are having to completely change the way that they do business. But the one group of things that have not changed at all based on the conditions of the greater world are the vineyards themselves, are the grapes that are growing out there in the fields. They're still growing, and we still have to deal with them. Actually, I guess I said that wrong there because the grapes in the fields have changed based on the conditions of the world. In fact, they're always changing based on the conditions of the world. The only difference is that they do not give a musty grape skin about pandemics. What the grapes care about is sun is rain, bugs, dirt. I'm recording this episode on May 3rd, 2020, and I'm looking out my window and I see storm clouds billowing across the town of Oliver. We've had hot enough weather over the last week that we've started to see freshet, which is, here's your word for the day, a term that describes snowmelt, basically the first water that comes down from the hills and the melting of the snow caps on the mountains. But we've seen that freshet washing down into the valley a lot of vineyards are starting to prepare for the potential of flooding. And in a lot of ways, you can look out there and life seems no different right now than it would any year. When you're out there working in a vineyard, and I can tell you this firsthand, everything else about society and the world around you falls away. And the only thing that really matters is the topic of today's podcast, which is terroir. Terroir is a word. It's a word in French, but don't let that intimidate you. Learning about wine is learning how to say French words in a way that doesn't make you sound like a jackass. 
But the topic here today is not how to not speak French. It's uh, terroir. So let's get back to that. What does terroir mean? Certainly it's a word that gets used quite often by winemakers, by wine critics, by anybody who discusses wine. But people will talk about the taste of terroir in a wine, or how a terroir will shine through. But terroir is not a flavor or taste in a wine. What it actually is, is context. Roughly described, terroir is the term that we use to describe the environment, everything in the environment that influenced and affected the growth of the grapes that we use to make a wine. And wine is very different than a lot of other alcohols. You look at something like vodka, and the best vodkas are distilled to the point where you cannot even taste the source material. It can be made out of potatoes, it can be made out of wheat, it can be made out of rice. It doesn't matter, because the goal is to refine it into a form where you cannot taste what it came from. But with wine, the goal is to taste exactly where it came from. If you go and talk to an experienced winemaker like, say, Michael Bartier over at Bartier Brothers here in Oliver, and you ask him, Michael, tell me your tricks and secrets. How do you make good wine? He'll tell you that they grow good grapes, and that his job is to just facilitate them into wine. Some vineyard managers or viticulturalists will describe themselves as wine growers, and that's because 95% of the quality can be achieved right out there in the field before you even pick the grapes. To reference another winemaker, Randy Picton, one of the winemakers down at Inconeve Cellars, once told me that just about anybody can make a good wine out of a good crop of grapes from a good season, and that the real test of a winemaker is for them to make a good wine out of bad grapes from a bad season. And all these conditions that Michael or Randy are referring to, these conditions that make a wine good, coming from grapes that are good, these conditions all fall under the term terroir. So let's get into the details here. One of the nice things about terroir is that its definition is not agreed upon, which is nice for us because it means that we can just say whatever we want and we're not going to be wrong. For example, terroir sometimes is defined as including traditional methods of winemaking for a certain region. One example would be the process of air drying the grapes in Valpolicella, Italy for making Amarone wine. This would be considered part of that region's terroir. But most experts consider terroir to just be a description of the natural conditions that affect the growth of the grapes, and by extension, the taste of the wine. So for our purposes, we're gonna separate terroir from technique. We're talking about four things. Number one, climate. Number two, topography. Number three, organisms. And number four, soil. Let's start with the big one, climate. This is one where I think everybody has some understanding of its importance towards wine growing. Generally speaking, hot is good, but there's actually a lot of nuance within that very blunt statement. Hot is good, yes, because grapes generally require decent levels of heat to mature and ripen. You can't grow grapes in objectively cold areas, but there is a real difference between hot enough and too hot. There's a big range to be spanned, and every individual grape varietal is going to have its own requirements. Pinot Noir is more sensitive and is going to require much less heat than something like a Cabernet Sauvignon. So when a vineyard prospector is looking to begin a vineyard, they're evaluating the heat units that they can absorb in a certain area, and then they're choosing exactly what grapes are going to fit best into that range. The way that we measure heat units is uh, with a unit called Growing Degree Days. It's a badly named unit, because you don't just get one growing degree day in a day. 
you can have many of them. You can have 10 growing degree days in one 24-hour cycle. So it really should just be called growing degree units, but I'm not the one that gets to name these things. I don't need to bore you with the math of how we calculate growing degree days, but uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm going to do it anyways. To determine how many growing degree days you get within a 24-hour cycle, you take the maximum temperature from that day in degrees Celsius, you add it to the minimum temperature from that day, you divide that by two, and then you subtract a number that represents how much heat your crop needs to start activating. For a cool weather crop, usually this is maybe five, because it needs to be at five degrees Celsius to start warming up. For something like grapes, you use 10. A grapevine needs to be at 10 degrees Celsius to really start waking up for the season. So you add your maximum temperature to your minimum temperature, you divide that by two, and then you subtract, for grapes, 10. If you're left with a positive number, then that number is how many growing degree days you get within your 24-hour cycle. And that starts accumulating into the plant and helping it grow. Over the course of a year, we track how many growing degree days that we accumulate in particular regions, and we use it to compare ourselves to other global wine regions. There was a growing degree day comparison that was done around 2015 that ranked BC zones against global zones. As a point of reference, Yakima, down in Washington, came in at 1,426. Napa, for that year, was 1,450. And up here in BC, the Golden Mile, which is a designated growing zone on the west side of the highway between Oliver and Asolis, it came in at 1,485, so actually hotter than Napa overall in that year. But what's really interesting is that the Black Sage Bench, which is a stone's throw across the highway on the east side of the road going between Oliver and Asolis, well, it came in at 1535. So we had a 50-point difference in GDDs just by traveling two minutes over from one side of the valley to the other. Ultimately, what you get from heat is sugar. You get ripeness. The hotter the season is, the more ripening those grapes go through, the more sugar they develop, and that sugar in the winemaking process gets transformed into alcohol. Alcohol isn't just there to get you drunk. It adds thickness, it adds texture, it adds viscosity to a wine. And it also transmits aroma. It generally makes a wine a lot riper and a lot fruitier and a lot bolder. So hot climate is going to get you these big jammy fruit bombs. Colder climate is going to mean less over alcohol, less overall ripening, but also higher acid. As we might remember from the last podcast, acid is a fantastic preservative. And this means that cooler climate reds, as long as they're still warm enough to be able to ripen fully, have the potential to be longer lived than reds from areas that have pure intense heat. Don't let anybody ever tell you that a hot year is better than a cold year, or that hot climate is better than a cold climate. They are simply different, and each type of area is equally capable of making phenomenal wines. Number two, topography. The three subcategories within topography that we look at are slope, I guess you could call it smoothness, and elevation. Slope is really critical, and you can look at some of the most famous vineyards in the world and you find that they're on hillsides. They're all slanted down. There are some German vineyards that look like they're nests for mountain goats, almost sideways. Well, slope is really important for drainage, and not just water drainage, but air drainage. This is also where smoothness comes into play. Smoothness being a, a very silly word, but it is the one that I chose, so I guess I'm sticking with it. As the season draws on into the fall, you're getting close to harvest time, you're going to start getting low temperatures at night. And if you have a flat property, that cold air is going to pool 
it's going to freeze and potentially is going to frost damage your grapes or your vines. So what you want is a sloped vineyard where all the cold air runs downwards and escapes from your vineyard. If you have a bumpy vineyard where there's lots of pockets and depressions, the cold air is going to stay there instead. It's going to freeze and your vines are going to get damaged. If you're driving through the Okanagan and you see windmills in people's vineyards, wherever there's a windmill, that's where there's a pocket or a depression. And we stick the windmills there to blow warm air down and cast out the cold air. The other thing to talk about with topography is elevation. Elevation is going to affect everything from your soil composition to the type of insects that you get around to, most obviously, the temperature. It gets colder when you get higher up. Most of the vineyards in Oliver Asoyus wine country are a little bit lower down closer to the base of the valley to capture more heat. But there are some notable exceptions. Kalmana Family Estate Winery has the highest elevation vineyard in the South Okanagan. They call it Margaret's Bench and it was planted back in 2011 at 595 meters of elevation above sea level. They chose this spot for their vineyard based on analysis that they used to conclude that it was very similar to Dijon, an area in Burgundy which is really ideally suited to Chardonnay. And so they grow Chardonnay plants up there on Margaret's Bench, almost 600 meters elevation, to put into their Dilemma Chardonnay, which is a really incredibly delicious wine. And there's a crisp freshness to the wine that owes a lot to that specific altitude and terroir. The third aspect of terroir to talk about is organisms, the things that live around your vineyard. This includes insects. We are all farmers, which means that insects play a role in our farming. Grapes are, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, hermaphroditic, so we don't require pollination catalysts. We don't need bees to transfer pollen. But there's a lot of other bugs out there. You get things like leafhoppers, which are bad. But then you have things like lace wings, which are good. Or mantids, praying manti, which are also good. If you've ever driven by a vineyard and you've seen rose bushes planted at the end of the vines, they might look pretty, but there's a very functional pragmatism behind it. It's not for the appearance. It's not because roses are going to make the grapes smell or taste like roses. It doesn't work like that. What it is, though, is that roses are much more appealing to a lot of pest insects than grapes are, which means that if you have an incursion of an aggressive species of insect coming into your vineyard, they're going to attack the roses first, and you're going to use that as an early warning system to know what you need to deal with. There are other plants that influence a vineyard a little bit more directly, namely the ground cover between the rows. Some vineyards ought to plant a monoculture of grass between their rows. And some vineyards ought to allow the natural flora of the area to flourish. Ground cover of any kind is going to help prevent against soil erosion from wind, and is going to help replenish the nutrients of the soil. There are other organisms that are going to affect vineyards, like animals or human beings, through the nature of pollution or incidental spraying coming in from neighboring farms. And even microbial organisms like bacteria are going to affect and influence the flavor of a wine that's coming from a particular plot. But when I talk about the ground cover refreshing the nutrients, or when I talk about these microbial factors, a lot of what these things are influencing is the final category of terroir that we need to talk about, and it's another big one, and it is soil. Vineyards are commonly planted in what we would consider to be bad soil. We don't really want rich, fertile, healthy soil. 
because grapes are vines. They grow like weeds, and most of the time we're actually trying to restrain their vigor. Kind of a poor, sparse, rocky soil is often going to give you a more flavorful and concentrated grape, as opposed to rich, damp soil that's going to give you a, a lot of grapes that are big and plump, but are mostly water inside. So the soil is extremely important in making sure that you have the correct amount of water retention and the proper nutrients without uh, there being an overabundance. Soil types like sand or gravel or limestone, these are excellent for growing grapevines in. And I'm afraid it does ruin a little bit of the romanticism, but having certain minerals in the soil doesn't actually make the wine taste like minerals. When you get a clean, refreshing minerality in something like a Riesling, it's not necessarily coming from minerality in the soil, although there are these kind of secondary tangential effects, like the soil underneath may encourage higher acidity and may reduce the amount of pH in your Riesling, which would perhaps encourage that minerality to come forward. If you want some examples of places where we have sand or gravel in this area, Oliver and Soyuz, an excellent place to look is a map that I helped create last year for Oliver and Soyuz wine country. This map divided our area into eight zones that were based on soil, on heat, and on all the other terroir contexts that we've been talking about today. The map shows off the fact that within just a couple of kilometers you can see huge distinctions in the conditions that affect different vineyards. You can see an area like the Black Sage Bench, which is generally rich in sand and heat, which is home to wineries like Black Hills or Platinum Bench, with a great big gravel bar right in the middle of it. And the wineries that are on that gravel bar, like Here's the Thing or Stoneboat, are going to be growing things in a totally distinct fashion from their immediate neighbors that are on sandier soil. You can see distinctions in the heat patterns. You go down to a Soyuz, which is another sandy area, very hot, but your wineries like Adega and Mooncursor on the east side are growing with very different conditions than your wineries like Young and Wise or Lariana that are on the west side. I recommend that if you're interested in terroir and understanding the way that the different wineries in Oliver Soyuz wine country are distinct from each other, that you take a look at that map. There's a link in the description of this podcast, and it'll also be posted alongside the podcast at oliverasoyuz.com and at www.vinstitute.ca. I could go on to talk about the aspects of terroir for hours and hours and hours, as you can probably tell, but I want to wrap it up here with the conclusive thought that when you're tasting a wine, you are tasting thousands of different elements that went into the creation of that particular bottle. And one of the reasons that wine is so enchanting and so nuanced and so detailed, and why it can encourage so much discussion and thought, is because of its almost infinite capacity for variation. You cannot have a season that is identical to the season that came before it, which means that every vintage of wine that you try is going to be different by necessity. The elements of terroir, the climate, the topography, the organisms, and the soil type are constantly in shift. And the next time that you open up a bottle of wine from Oliver Soyuz Wine Country, I want you to think about all the things that made that wine taste exactly the way that it did. And hopefully I've helped you understand that a little bit today. So thank you all for listening to Uncork the Sun today with me. Again, if you want to learn all about the wineries in Oliver Soyuz Wine Country, your place to go is www.oliverasoyuz.com. Thank you to everybody who tuned in for our live virtual Vinstitute broadcast back on April 28th. If you missed that, the video is still available on the Oliver Soyuz Wine Country Facebook page, and it showcases a general discussion about the difference between white and red wine, as well as featuring a tasting of the Tinhorn Creek Pinot Gris and the Geringer Brothers Pinot Noir. The next live video seminar is going to be held on May 26th at 7 o'clock p.m., 
once again streamed live on the Oliver Asoyus Wine Country Facebook page, and we hope that you'll all check it out. If you want to post about this show or about the live tastings, use the hashtag UncorkTheSun. This podcast is released every second week, so we hope you'll keep listening for the next episode. And if you have any questions about wine or winemaking, feel free to email me at moss, M-O-S-S, at vinstitute.ca. This podcast is a collaboration between Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country and the Vinstitute Wine School. The music for this episode was provided by Olav. To hear more of his work, visit Olav, that's O-L-A-V, dot bandcamp, dot com. And the host has been me, Moss Shokogel, realizing that I left my shoes outside and it just started raining. Whether you're experiencing the beauty of Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country from the comfort of your home or whether you're planning a trip here for the future, we can't wait to come together, raise a glass, and uncork the sun together. Together.